Well, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation 12. Um, also, if you want to put uh, a piece of paper or a marker in Romans 8, we're going to spend some time in Romans 8 today. As we begin, um, I realize this is a bit of a, as we, I've stated before, a bit of a uh, non-ordinary uh, Christmas series to be doing. Um, and as a pastor, it's always, it's always um, uh, I'm always appreciative to hear how the, the sermon series are making an impact in your life, uh, sometimes in ways that are expected and uh, sometimes not expected, um, and I've seen some ways where this this series here in chapter 12 has made an impact in some people's minds at least. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was at a Christmas party, and, and we were playing a fun game of drawing, um, th- drawing Christmas-themed things, and you'd have to send it around the table and guess what it is, and everybody was pulling things out of the the jar, and it was like things like snowman, manger, um, stocking, stuff like that. Well, I wondered why I was kind of slipped mine, and when I opened mine, it said seven-headed dragon. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, this past week, uh, we were having, uh, as a family, we went to Knobles uh, has a Christmas lights um, drive through. It's really cool if you have a chance to drive all the way uh, down to Knobles. Uh, it, it's really good. It's free advertising here for Knobles. Um, but one section of all of their lights as you're driving through is like all nativity stuff and wise men and angels. And all of a sudden in the back of the van, I hear a wise guy say, Where's the seven headed dragon? So. <laughs> So, you know, those are at least two instances here where I see that this series has had an impact, uh, hopefully on some deeper levels than that as well. But um, we're going to continue looking at Revelation 12. And we've seen so far that the woman was in birth pain and agony. We've seen that the dragon was hovering, waiting to destroy the child. However, this child who was destined to rule and reign was born and and victoriously taken up into heaven, we saw last week. However, the dragon pursued this woman into the scary wilderness where the text says God would nevertheless protect and preserve her. Then we also began to see that the mighty victory of this child is also depicted for us in chapter 12 as a great war in heaven with Michael and his angels defeating the dragon and his angels. And as we're going to see this morning, great rejoicing will now erupt in heaven. You see, John's vision in chapter 12 gives us encouragement, it gives us hope, it gives us confidence. Why? Because Christ's victory is the dragon's defeat. And as we have seen throughout chapter 12 so far, the people of God 
must live in the victory that Christ has provided. Because we have already seen that, that the woman has to flee to the wilderness. And we're going to see uh, next week, we, we, as we conclude chapter 12, we're going to see that the dragon is on the attack of the people of God. But that is okay. Because Christ's victory is the dragon's defeat. As you look at your own life, are you living in that hope in that encouragement, in that confidence today? Does this Christmas season, does it, does it remind you of the hope that you truly do have if you're a follower of Jesus? Or does it simply, this season simply bring stress, anxiety, maybe depression, or sentimentality? Well, today we're going to continue our look at John's vision of this great war in heaven. We're simply going to look at just a few verses this morning, uh, verses 9 to 12, as we continue to look at this war in heaven and its results. And even though there's an ensuing war on the woman here, we can be confident that no matter how good things get or how bad things get for God's people, we are victorious through Christ. So last week in verses 7 and 8, we saw that, that this war arose in heaven. It's basically a parallel to the victory of Christ on the cross, this, this earthly picture paralleled by this heavenly picture of this great battle. And it says in verse 7, Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. You see, it was, it was God's representatives that were on the attack, on the offensive. No matter the fact that the dragon is, and his angels fought back, verse 8 says, he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. We're going to unpack what that means this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. God, while there is no longer any place for Satan and his demons in heaven, there's no longer any standing. God, I thank You that through Christ, who intercedes on our behalf, Lord, we can come with boldness and confidence before the throne of grace. Lord, thank You for the realities of Christmas. Lord, the story of Christmas doesn't just stop at the manger. That's simply the earthly beginning. And Lord, I pray that this morning, especially as we partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, that You would renew our hope and our steadfastness in Christ. Christ our victor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked, verses 7 and 8, at this heavenly war and we saw the dragon's defeat in the heavenlies. This morning we're going to see in verses 9 through 11 that Satan's 
loss was a decisive victory for the saints, for the people of God, for you and for me. In verse 9, we see that the dragon serpent is cast out of heaven. Now, some individuals and and a valid interpretation of verses 9 through 11, some individuals uh, see this as, as uh, before creation, Satan rebelling against God in heaven and he and his angels getting cast out. That's a possible interpretation. It's not the one that I hold uh, because of the flow of this vision and some verses we'll look at in a bit. I see this as Satan being cast out of heaven, of having access to heaven, at his defeat on the cross. And regardless of what viewpoint you take, verse 9 shows that the dragon is cast out. Let's read verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Then we continue this description of this dragon, this ancient serpent. He's the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. As I mentioned last week, Satan's defeat by the child who was born The the dragon could not kill the child. He was ascended. He was taken up into heaven. And then we saw the heavenly victory of Michael and his angels. The dragon is a defeated foe. As one individual says, Satan, at the cross, Christ defanged Satan. He defanged the serpent. He's a defeated foe. I think the description that we see here in verses in verse 9 runs parallel to what Jesus says during his earthly ministry and this is one of the reasons I feel that this description is of Satan's defeat at the cross and not before time. The God you remember Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples. And they did miracles, they cast out demons, they healed in the power of Jesus. And they come back and they are elated. And Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 18, He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You see, Jesus is speaking here that He has come for Satan's defeat. And the power of God that was being manifested through these 72 followers is the same power that would cast Satan from having access to heaven. Jesus, in talking about His coming crucifixion that was just about to arise, uh, says in John 12, verse 31, talking about Him being lifted up on the cross, now is the judgment of this world Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus came to secure our salvation. And in securing our salvation, He defeated the enemy. 
I like what one individual says concerning this passage and Satan. He is not the super soldier and strong man many think he is. For he has been utterly defeated by the stronger man, Jesus. He is the greatest con man who ever lived. The roaring lion who wants to devour us does so, as we will see here in this verse in a bit, through deceptive temptation. Now why does he say through deceptive temptation, this this con man? Because of what we continue to read in verse 9, that this great dragon, I mean, he's a mighty beast. He's a great dragon. But he's thrown down. He's cast out. And then we get some added insight into this great dragon because he is that ancient serpent. Did you know in Genesis 3, nowhere does it say when the snake talked to Eve that that was Satan? How do we know that was Satan? Well, obviously through his actions and his characteristics. But here, Revelation 12 leaves it without doubt. This dragon that John sees in this vision is the very same one who appeared all the way back in Genesis 3. That's why he's called the ancient serpent. He's been around for a really long time. Satan is not eternal, only God is. Satan was a created angel that fell, that, that, that rebelled against God. But he is ancient nonetheless. And you know, a lot of times, individuals' names are descriptive of their character. Or their Their titles are descriptive of their character. And that's the case here. It says that this great dragon and this ancient serpent, he's called the devil and Satan. These names, or or more specifically, these titles, these are titles for Lucifer, the, the fallen one, The devil literally means slanderer or accuser. Satan, it's kind of a synonym with the devil, uh, means the adversary. How is he an adversary? Because he accuses us. He seeks our demise. So we're getting more and more description here of who who this great enemy is. The great dragon who's the ancient serpent whose character is the one who accuses, who slanders, who's, who's an adversary to the saints. Then we get an even greater light on how he is our adversary. He is the deceiver of the whole world. You see, his actions describe his character. Satan's primary weapon, as as one individual said, is deceit. His primary weapon is deceit. In Genesis 3, what did he do to Eve? He caused doubt. 
he caused her to question God. Did God really say that you'll die if you take of this fruit? Maybe God's just trying to hold something good back from you. It was deception. And that deception is is always mixed in a bit of truth, but, but at the core, there is a deception to make people go contrary to God's plan. I mean, when you look at at all that's going on in this world's culture, wouldn't you say it's simply a counterfeit option to God's plan? I mean, party now because you only have one life, so leave it all on the table now. Sounds good, doesn't it? Except leaves out the there's an eternal life ahead. We see it in marriage. We see it with, with uh, aborting babies. We see it with gender. And all of these things that we see the great deceiver presenting counterfeit options. Jesus describes, this, uh, describes Satan this way in John 8.44, talking to those that were rejecting him, refusing to listen to his words. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to, to, to do your father's desires. And here we see a description of what we read of this dragon in Revelation 12. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there is not truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, The God of this age, that Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And folks, just like Christ has secured a victory for the saints, the great deceiver is still on the prowl, seeking to deceive even God's people in ways that he can to trip them up. Isn't it amazing the amount of ways we can get distracted as Christians today? If you've ever read the screw tape letters, I, I would encourage that by C.S. Lewis, where, where uh, it's, it's basically a mentor demon that is, that is teaching a younger demon how to distract this individual, and it traces his life. He, he was an unbeliever, well, now he's a believer. Okay, well, even though he's a believer, we can still do these things to get him off track. It, it's really fascinating. But Satan is still out to deceive not simply the world, the unbelievers where he has blinded their minds, but he is seeking to deceive Christians that he may not be able to take away their salvation, but he can deceive us to the point of there is no mission for God There is no joy. There is no peace. 
that our minds become so cluttered that we are living almost to the point of being no different from this world. And mark it down, you and I each have blind spots and points where we are prone to deception. My ways of being prone to deception can be different than yours. That's why we need each other, by the way. We need the church to be able to help us in our blind and weak spots that we all have. And someone else, you know, it's amazing, even uh, in, in Rachel and I in our marriage, I can have different weaknesses than her, and she can very easily see those, and I can very easily see hers. Um, and when that is done in a Christ-like way, not, not in an attacking way, that is a huge help. Are we on guard for the ways that Satan desires to come and to deceive? Because verse 9 here says, he is a deceiver of the whole world. That's the bad news. But the good news is that even though all of these things are true, verse 10 tells us that victory has been declared. John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. A few things I want you to see about this proclamation. It's a confident proclamation. This is a loud voice from heaven saying with the utmost confidence that victory has been declared. Victory has been won. You notice the timing here in this declaration it says now again we talked about last week the already what christ has already accomplished but there's still more to come you see this even here in this verse where it says now these things have happened but we're going to read in verse 13 to 17 that the woman god's people are still under attack but yet the victory that Christ has secured on the cross is so final and so true that we can speak of that which already is and is which not yet to come, both with utmost confidence. The timing here is now. And then we see the description of this victory. Look at these terms. Now the salvation and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of His Christ have come. Salvation, power, kingdom, authority. Wow. In the midst of this great, scary, big dragon, here's reality. Salvation has come. Ultimate security 
ultimate peace, ultimate rest. A salvation greater than the circumstances of this world because we're going to see, um, uh, we're not going to have time to get into it, but if you keep reading into Revelation 13, you're going to see God's people being slaughtered. But yet the fact that they can still claim salvation has come. Why? Because we are looking at ultimate salvation, ultimate victory. Not what one can do with the body, but with the soul. That next term, power, we already saw how Satan was defeated. That greater is God than he who is in the world. Only a powerful Savior can secure our salvation. And then the kingdom of God has come. It has come now in its power, but yet it will one day be fully manifested on this earth. The kingdom of God above the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of Satan. It's like what Daniel says when the rock that was, that was taken out of the rock smashes the statue and all of the other kingdoms. And who is the one who is fit to rule this kingdom? It says, the authority of Christ. He has been given ultimate authority. And then we keep reading in verse 10. Why has this happened? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The grounds for this proclamation is Christ's victory and the reality that the accuser has now been cast out. As verse uh, I believe it was verse uh, 8 says, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. What is that place? Well, we see the accuser has been cast out. And the spiritual reality of the accuser being placed out of heaven, no longer having any place before God, we see the effects of this reality. If your finger or marker is in Romans 8, you can turn there. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. If we jump all the way over to verses 33 and 34, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That means declares righteous. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died here we see Revelation 12, verse 5. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What we see here, folks, is the work of the accuser. There is no longer any grounds for the accuser. 
to do what he was so prone to do. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, how, um, uh, what do you mean he was so prone to accuse us? Well, we have several Old Testament examples of this. The, the activity of the accuser before the cross. Think of Job. Remember Job? I have some, uh, uh, this passage here on the screen for you. In Job 1, verses 6 to 9, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro, uh, from, from on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Sounds like the lion, doesn't it? Then, and then you go down a little bit in that passage. It says, uh, uh, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? And it says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? And when you continue reading down that passage, he's like, basically... Of course Job is going to serve you. You've just blessed him so much. But take those things away and he will no longer. And then you read chapter 2 and the same scenario comes up. We see the accuser at work accusing God's people before His throne. In Zechariah chapter 3, we don't have time to get into the full significance of this passage, but Zechariah the prophet has a vision. And this vision uh, uh, involves the restoration of Israel. They were in captivity at the time of this writing. And he has a vision of Joshua the high priest who was a picture of uh, a coming picture of, of the greater high priest Jesus that was coming. But notice the, the, the details here. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I clothe you with pure vestments. Folks, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He has declared us righteous. The blood of Jesus, if we are followers of Him, if we have looked to Him for salvation, has been applied to our spiritual hearts. And there is now absolutely no more ground that Satan has in the heavenlies to accuse us. He's defeated. He's been cast out of having any grounds to come before God against us any longer. That's what we read. That's why Romans 8 says, who can do all these things? Jesus, His work has been applied to you, Christian. As Greg Beale says, the place, verse 8, which the devil lost was his hitherto 
privileged place of accusation, formerly granted him by God as a temporary privilege. Can you say amen to this truth? Now, just like if the light of the gospel has come into our hearts and we are a believer, we still have to be on guard against the great deceiver because our hearts can still be deceived and and taken off track. Satan may no longer have a right to accuse us before God, but guess who Satan's going to accuse? That doesn't mean he's, he's going to stop accusing you. That again, as the deceiver, he's going to rightly so show you all of your faults and your failures and mistakes and all of these things. But as the deceiver, he's going to leave out the other half of truth that Jesus has taken care of those things. And that we can run to the cross with our sins as believers. See, Satan's very selective in what he represents. So we still must be on guard because Satan is still the great accuser who seeks to accuse us. You see, folks, we are, because of this victory, we are conquerors through Christ. This loud voice continues and says, they have conquered him, the serpent, the dragon. With our strength, with our righteousness, with our cunningness, with our political figures that are in Washington? No. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto How are Christians conquerors? Through Christ's blood. It is His death that atones for sin. It is His death that has given victory. But not only that, but we are conquerors through the word of our testimony. This is talking about believers that have held true to the gospel even in the face of death. Boy, what encouragement for saints that are going through severe persecution. I mean, we, 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 the, the book of Revelation, the direct audience to Revelation, these seven churches, I just want to read you um, a description here of, of, of one of the churches. This is the church of Smyrna. This is what Jesus says to this church. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Again, in Revelation, numbers are symbolic. Ten meaning a number of completion that until my ordained time of completion, you will face persecution. But be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Folks, that's a picture of people who have stood for the testimony of the Word 
even to the point of death. It's not on the screen for you, but the church of Pergamum in Revelation, just three verses later, 2.13, Jesus says this to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He was a faithful witness. And folks, saints all throughout the history of God's people have held the testimony of Christ and have died for their faith. That's why Revelation 6, verse 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Are you willing to stand for the witness of the word, even to the point of death? Why can we do this? Is it through our own strength or resolve? No, it's because the whole Christmas story that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we are to have this mind in us which is already ours in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 35 to 39, says we are more than conquerors through Christ. Even though like sheep, quoting from the Old Testament, we are being slaughtered because nothing can separate us from God's love. Pastor Dennis is going to be reading this passage during our communion celebration. So folks, are you rejoicing? Are you confident? Are you living in light of the blood of the Lamb that has been applied to your heart? And are you living for the Word that your testimony is a declaration of that Word of the Gospel? We're not, none of us here, I think, are, have had any threats on our lives. But boy, oftentimes it's harder to consistently live for Christ than to have a moment of death. Why? Because in the Christian life, every day is death to self. It's not about our agendas. Lastly, we see in this Heavenly war, this war in the heavens, verse 12, describes for us both rejoicing and weeping. Now we know in God's plan, one day, as Psalm 96, 11 says, it says, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. One day that will be the case, but not now. Because here we see celebration in heaven, but mourning on the earth. This loud voice says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This celebration in heaven is because the devil has been cast out, and believers are conquerors in Christ. That's what we just read. 
But there's also this mourning on the earth. Why? Because the devil has come in great wrath. Woe to you, O earth and sea. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, whenever you see the term those who dwell on the earth or earth dwellers, it's always referring to unbelievers in the book of Revelation. So the woe that's being pronounced here There are believers on the earth. I mean, we are living here on the earth post-cross where the devil has lost his place in heaven. But this woe is not for us. Though, as we will see next week, the dragon is on the attack. No, this is a woe of God's judgment. The devil has come in great wrath, yes, to attack God's people, but we know that he cannot ultimately defeat God's people. See, it is a lost and dying world that is under the judgment of God and the full fury of his wrath. Who is he going to drag to hell with him? It is those without Christ. And folks, the word of our testimony is to be a light in this dark world. To shine. Because Satan's furious with us, but he's limited in what he can do to us as his people. But man, those that are his, that are in the kingdom of darkness, there's no mercy. There's a need for rescue. And he's mad because he knows the end of verse 12 says his time is short. You see, the time, the last days in the Bible are not, a, not simply a, a, a period of time, uh, a few years. The last days in the Bible go from the cross all the way to Christ's second coming. And we know that that time seems long, but, but the, the authors of the New Testament say, you know, Jesus is coming quickly. He's coming soon. At the end of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. It doesn't seem quick to us. But it is quick on the divine timetable. But you know, there's someone else who knows just how quick things are. And that's the evil one. He knows his time is short. He knows he's defeated. But in his pride, in his rebellion, he is going to seek to destroy everything in his path. He's going to try to wreak the most havoc he can in the church, among God's people, in this world. But it is only God's people that will not fall prey. As we conclude, we must realize that Christ's victory is the dragon's defeat. Are you living for the Lord in light of the short time that we have? Are you seeking to be a witness that it's not through your words or what you do, but it's through the Holy Spirit working through you? To shine the light of the gospel to others. No matter how dark 
or dreary the place. Let's pray.